Father, we thank You for this Word. A Word that informs us of things for which we should be thankful, as we saw last week. And a Word which reminds us of things for which we should pray for one another and for which we should work with one another. And our Father, we pray that you would take this passage this morning and work it into our hearts by your Spirit. For we understand that what Paul was asking for the Colossians and for all believers is something that comes about by the working of your Spirit. This is not man's work. This is Spirit work. And so we pray and ask that you would give us grace to do that to which you have called us and that you would give us the Spirit in such measure that He transforms us into this ideal of what we should be and can be. And Father, would you use this word this morning not only to equip our prayers, but to equip our functioning and are working in the body of Christ. And so would you change us? Father, in some senses, this morning is just a, just a regular Sunday. There's nothing particularly compelling or unusual about it. It's just a Sunday. But it is a Sunday of worship. It is a Sunday where we have been gathered together in your name and for your sake. And, and because this is about you and because this is from your word, this worship that we are practicing, and Father, would you change us and transform us? And Father, might this be a, a day of powerful transformation for we who hear this word that we might be conformed to the image of our precious Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, and last Sunday in particular, we have remembered our church's history, 40 years of faithfulness in serving Christ in Granbury. And we have, we have not just remembered our church, but we have remembered God's faithfulness to us. And and particularly last Sunday, we wanted to focus on, on God's grace to us and God's kindness to us and, and how God has been so faithful to us for all these years. And our, our attention has been focused on Him, um, particularly last week, and giving thanks to Him. And we've given thanks to Him for His care. Now what? And as we said last Sunday, by the grace of God, we do not believe that we have finished or completed the task that God has given us. There is worship that is still to be offered. There is evangelism that is to be practiced. There is discipleship to be done. There is fellowship and to be enjoyed and physical help to be given and scripture to be taught. We are a long way from being finished. There's, there's a lot to do, so it's, it's time to get back to work. We've partied, and now it's work time. What is our task then for the days ahead? What should consume us? What are our priorities, and, and where are we focused? And, and, and after 40 years, have our priorities changed Last Sunday, Pastor Keith served us well by reminding us of the priority of prayer in our church body, that in the days ahead, we must be people of prayer who express our dependence on God and express our trust in Him through prayer. Now, that perspective fits very well with, with what I'd already planned on doing before last Sunday that, that Keith didn't know about, and that is to come to one of Paul's prayers and and listen to what Paul says we ought to pray for one another. So, so Paul, in, in telling us what we ought to pray for one another, is not just shaping our prayer life. He's also shaping what we do. He's, he's shaping our goals and our trajectory and the things for which we're working. Because we don't just pray these things. 
we work and we labor and we pursue the things for which we are praying. What we pray compels how we work in the church body. Specifically, as we look at Colossians 1, 9-12, we will find that we pray and work for a church that is pleasing to the Lord. We, we focus our prayers on desiring that God would shape individuals within the church body and that the entire church body would be pleasing to the Lord. And then we don't just pray for that, but we make that our goal and our perspective. So that's what we are working for, to, to see people, individuals, who are living lives that are pleasing to the Lord and a church body at large that is living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. So we work and we pray for a church that is pleasing to the Lord. And as we do that, we're going to find in this passage that we pray and work for six particular attributes in the church. Six particular attributes in the church. We'll pray, first of all, verse 9, and work for spiritual filling. We will pray and work for spiritual filling. Notice he begins verse 9 by saying, for this reason also. And the question is, for for what reason, Paul? And and I think what Paul is referring back to is verse 4. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love we have for and the love you have for all the saints. So we heard of your faith in Christ, and we heard not only that you believe in Christ, but that you also, that your faith in Christ overflows into love and concern for others in the body of Christ. We've heard of that. And so he says in verse 9, since the day that we heard of it, for that reason, your faith and your love, we have not ceased to pray for you. Because of the reputation of the Colossian believers, Paul is motivated to pray for them. And just by way of reminder, Paul had not yet been to Colossae. He he didn't know these people individually. He only knew of them by reputation. And this is this is a reminder that we we as we pray don't want to just pray for our, our local body. Obviously we want to pray for our families and our, our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, our siblings and and those who are in that circle of influence. We want to think about our home group and the people that we serve in various ministries with in the church body, and we want to think about our church body, but we also want to think broader than that. And we want to think about people and places where where the gospel is not yet gone, but gone yet, where, where we just know about them by reputation. For instance, one of our own brothers this morning is 13, 14, 15 time zones away in Papua New Guinea and serving the Finney people. Now, we know David, but... But we've never met the Finney people. And and by application of what Paul says here, just because we haven't met them doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them. Our brother is with them, pouring his life into them so that they have the Scriptures, so that they can be transformed by the Scriptures. And, and we ought to be praying for their reception of the Scriptures, their understanding of the Scriptures, not just praying for David, but also praying for those to whom he's ministering. And, and much more could be said than that as well, about praying for others. And notice how Paul talks about prayer, verse 9. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. That word pray is a, a very, in a sense, generic and plain word for prayer. It simply refers to any kind of petition that goes to the Lord or to a deity. It was even used of, uh, in a secular sense of praying to false deities. And it's just just a just a request that's made. It's, it's any kind of attribution, any kind of any kind of communication, if you will, with God. And and Paul says about that that we have not ceased to pray for you. And and, and Paul uses two ways to emphasize the continuality of his prayer. So he uses the present tense. So he says we are praying. We have not ceased to pray. That's a present tense. So we, we do pray. As we think about you, we continually, habitually, regularly pray for you who are Colossians. And then he also says, we have not ceased to pray for you. So not only do we pray, but we have not stopped praying. And it's, it's two ways for Paul to emphasize the importance of continuing on and persevering in prayer. And then he also says, not just have we prayed for you, but we are asking. 
So we've gone to God and we, we've asked something. And that word ask is a more particular term and it refers to the fact that, that there is one who is in authority and one who is in submission to that authority. And we are asking and, and in our asking we are recognizing that God is above us, we are subservient to Him and we are dependent upon Him. We need Him. And it is an asking for the particular things in which we need Him to operate in our lives and in the lives of others as well. Now what's not stated here particularly, though it is certainly implied, is this. Paul's saying, I want you to pray, or I am praying for these things, and in saying I'm praying for these things, he's giving us a model. This is how we also should pray. And if, you ever, if you're ever wondering, how should I pray for others in the body of Christ? Just, just take one of these prayers, the prayer in Colossians, the prayer in Ephesians, the, the prayer in Philippians, perhaps one of the prayers in, in either of the Thessalonian epistles, and, and pray those prayers for other believers. It, you will find that to be tremendously helpful as you, as you think about praying for others. But there's something else that he's doing here. He's not just informing how we should pray, But in fact, he's saying, if this is the prayer, is the implication also not, this is also what we should do? So so I am praying for these things implies that that's also what we are working for and working towards. If If we want God to work this in us, then we are also committing ourselves to doing the very things that we are asking Him to do. Now, the first request that the Apostle Paul makes is given to us in the middle of verse 9. We've not ceased to pray and ask, and here's the content of his prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And that word fill is a word that that Paul uses somewhat frequently in his letters. In fact, if you just turn the page over to chapter 2, we see it in verses 9 through 10. Speaking about Jesus Christ, he says in chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So, so Christ has all of, of God's deity in Him. The God, excuse me, Christ is not missing anything that would make Him deity. He is, he is fully God in every kind of way. And, and yet while he is full deity, he still has a bodily form. That is, he has, he has full and true manhood. So fully God, fully man. And notice verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. And that word complete, you may have a footnote there in your Bible, is not just the word complete. It's actually the same word from verse 9. It is the word full. And in him you have been made Full. Everything that you need to be connected to Christ and rightly related to God, you have through Christ. You don't have the fullness of Christ's deity, but you have the fullness, you have everything that you need in order to walk with Christ and be faithful to Christ. And what Paul does is he takes that same word and he uses it here in verse 9 and he says, I want you to be filled. So you are full in Christ. What he says now is, I want you to experience and know the fullness of the reality of what you are in Christ our Savior. And there's something particular that I want you to know that filling, that controlling, that that substantive work in your life, and what you want he wants us to particularly know is the knowledge of his will. He wants us to be under the control of and dominated by God's will, that they would know and be obedient to God's revealed moral will. And where do we find God's will. Where do we, where do we get an understanding of what God's moral will is? Well, chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, again speaking about Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to know the will of God, go to Christ. And if you want to know the will of God, don't just go to Christ, 
but go to Christ's word, which is why he says in 128, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So every man, every individual, every person that we relate to in the body of Christ, we want to take to Christ and we want to admonish them, counsel them, compel them, urge them, convince them, by the teaching of Christ's word so that they're changed and transformed. And all this, all this teaching, all this understanding, he says, comes to us at the end of verse 9 in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, it comes to us in a spiritually appraised manner. It comes to us not just spiritually appraised, it comes to us through the spirit. Wisdom, the art of living, and understanding the application of wisdom to our particular troubles and circumstances and situations in life, wisdom and understanding come by the Spirit of God and through His Word. As we think about 40 years of ministry, we are still focused on these things. We're still focused on persevering in prayer for one another, even those whom we have not yet met. But we pray for that God will work His work in their lives. And we are committed to helping people know the reality of what they are in Christ. We we want people to know the fullness of what they are in Christ. And then we want people to understand the fullness of how Christ relates to how they live in wisdom and understanding. And we do that through the Scriptures. So whatever else we do... In ministry, it is going to be Bible-focused. It's it's God's wisdom, and it is Spirit-empowered. It is God's means. This isn't this isn't about what we can do. This isn't what about what I can do. This isn't about what the elders can do. This is not what teachers can do. This isn't what the CBCD conference can do. This is about the Word of Christ and what it can do to give us wisdom, so that we know how to live. And and listen, this is this has always been the focus of ministry. This is always what we have done and this is what ministry has always been about. And so we find in second second Timothy chapter 4 um, it says preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This is this is what New Testament ministry is. It's it's unfolding the word of God, teaching the word of God. Um, teaching the Spirit's Word, Christ's Word, so that people are changed. But this isn't just New Testament theology. This is Bible theology. This is the way, this is the way it all has always been for God's people. So consider what Moses said to the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In the morning, in the evening, at home, on the road, wherever you are, you're constantly taking the Word of God and pouring it into the lives of others so that they are shaped and transformed. Friends, that's that's Spirit-filled work. And that's what we're praying for, that the Spirit of God would fill members of our church body, with His Word so that they're shaped and transformed. So we will pray and work for spiritual filling. We will secondly pray and work for worthy lives. We will pray and work for worthy lives. Notice what he says next in verse 9 or verse 10, actually, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. When he uses the word walk, he's simply talking about um, you will live your life in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. He's talking not about a particular place you are going, but just your your living life. It's it's a broad term for the conduct and character of our lives. And Paul uses that same term to walk in a variety of other contexts. He talks about walking or living in humility and purity and contentedness and by faith and living different from the world and living in good works and living in love and in light and in wisdom and in truth. And here he uses perhaps the broadest of all these terms and he says the nature and character of your life 
is such that it ought to be worthy of the Lord. And, and the word worthy pictures a set of balanced scales. You know the scales that, that um, you know, there's kind of a, a, an upright and a, a bar that goes across the upright and then chains that, that hold some plates down that you can set something in and, and you can compare the weights with each other. And to be worthy of Christ suggests that, that on one side of the scales is the life of Christ and on the other side of the scales is our life. And there is compatibility between the two. They correspond to each other. Now, we aren't identical to Christ. We aren't perfect like Christ. We aren't exactly like Christ in that sense. But, but there is a correspondence and a relationship to our life and Jesus Christ. They're equitable lives. They're balanced lives. It is simply another way for the Apostle Paul to say, we are living for Christ. This is what he will say in chapter 1, verse 18. Just a few verses later, he will say about Jesus Christ, He also is the head of the body of the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. He wants Christ to be first. He wants Christ to be preeminent. And, and that, that's simply a way of re-emphasizing that we live not for ourselves, but we live for the purpose of bringing glory to Christ. We live for the purpose of being worthy of Christ whose name we bear. And Paul says that this looks particularly like being pleasing, notice verse 10, to please Him in all respects, in all respects, in every facet of our lives, in every corner of our lives, in every part of our lives, in every part of our inner lives, in every part of our outer lives, we are living not for our own pleasure, but we are living for the pleasure of Christ. You take all this and put it together, and simply what Paul's praying for is, we want transformed lives. We want, we want people to be sanctified. We want people to be changed. We want people growing toward Christ, and we want people growing in Christ. Isn't it true that the natural temptation of man is always to please other men and not God? We're always concerned about what does my wife's wife think? What does, what does my husband think? What will my parents think? What will my neighbor think? What will, what will my children think? What will my boss think? What will the other employees think? If I, if I do this, will someone ostracize me? If I, if I do this, will someone mock me? If, if I do this, will someone look down on me? And friends, Paul says, that's all off the table. I'm interested in one thing. Does this please the Lord? Does this bring honor to Him? Does this exalt Him? Is this corresponding to the way Christ lived? Does it exalt Him? You will never ultimately regret any pursuit of the pleasure of God. You you, you will never, when you stand before the throne of God, ever regret anything that you have done in order to pursue Christ. And by the same token... When you are standing before the throne of God, you will always regret anything that you have done not to please God. If there's anything that pulls you away from Christ and you have engaged in that, that will, well, perhaps giving a temporary pleasure will give you an ultimate sorrow. You will never regret ultimately anything you do in pursuing Christ and you will always regret ultimately anything that draws you away from the pursuit of Christ. As we think about church life after 40 years of ministry, it is possible to accomplish things in the name of Christ without being worthy of Christ. Two two passages that I'll even use the word haunt Two passages haunt me in this regard. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom of, enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Friends, it is possible It is even in some circles and in some situations probable that people are doing things in the name of Christ, functioning in the body of Christ, and they are completely disconnected from Christ, not doing anything for His sake or for His worthiness, but for their sake and for their glory. And there is no connection to Christ, and they will lose it all in the end. May that never be said of Grace Bible Church in Granbury. The other passage that that I think of in this relation is a passage about the Ephesian church where Jesus says about them, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, Revelation 2.2, and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to, test, put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have persevered and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This is, this is a church that I want to be a part of. This is, this is a solid church. This is a, a rooted church. And then Christ indicts them. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. They did all of that not for the sake of Christ, not for love of Christ but for false motives. And friends, may that never be us. May we always be focused on living lives that are worthy of Christ and honoring to Him. We will pray and work for spiritual filling. We will pray and work for, spirit, for worthy lives. We will pray and work, thirdly, for spiritual fruitfulness. For spiritual fruitfulness, notice what he says there in the middle of verse 10. Not only walking worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, but bearing fruit in every good work. And actually, following that statement, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that's a main verb, walk. And now he has, in verses 10, 11, and 12, four um, secondary verbs, some participles that explain the primary verb. So, So he uses four participles to explain what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. And and the first of those is the participle bearing fruit. So that we are, what does it mean to live a life worthy of Christ? It means to bear fruit for Christ. And what does he mean by, by bearing fruit? Well, he tells us that bearing fruit includes the things that we do When we do, notice he says, in every good work. When we do good works. Now, the good works are not an attempt to to gain favor with God and, and, and get His justification by merit. But it is simply a response to God and what He has worked in us through salvation. For the gospel, the design of the gospel is that it will produce good fruit in us. So Paul writes... Perhaps you remember this from a few months ago, Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. In other words, you you were crucified to the law so that you could be identified with Christ. And in that identity with Christ, he says, that was given in order that we might bear fruit for God. We have been saved so that we bear fruit, so that we are productive for Jesus Christ. In fact, that was the very testimony of the Colossians. He already has said in verse 6 of chapter 1 that the gospel came to them as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So around the world, the gospel always comes to bear fruit and expand and grow. And that's the very thing that was happening in the Colossians. And now he says, not just have you already borne fruit, but we want you to bear even more fruit and produce more fruit. Says one commentator, a Christian is nothing if he is not a fruit bearer. 
This, this, is, this is the centrality of what we are in Christ is to bear fruit. What kind of fruit does Paul have in mind? Well, he has in mind anything that is good and honorable before the Lord. So things like converts to Christ are called fruit and transformed lives from sin are called fruit and, and praise of God, the, the fruit of our lips that give praise to His name is called fruit. Uh, financial care of others is spiritual fruit. Godly, righteous living is spiritual fruit. Spirit-produced, God-like attributes and actions are spiritual fruit. Anything, frankly in which we are serving Christ in the power of the Spirit, under His authority, under His dominion, could be attributed as spiritual fruit. As we think about church life, after 40 years of ministry, what we want to do is help people produce genuine spiritual fruit. There there are in the church, we've already alluded to this, there are in the church... False believers, there are counterfeits. People who say, yeah, I'm of you. And like in the Ephesian church that John wrote about, they went out from us because they were not of us. And, and we want people to be able to produce genuine, biblical, godly, spirit-produced fruit. And friends, that means that one of the things that we are going to be committed to is we are going to be lovingly involved in in each other's lives so that when we see sin in our lives, we don't just wink at it, we don't just overlook it, we don't just assume that it's going to go away. We we engage in people's lives and we say, hey, I, I saw something the other day. Can you tell me what was going on? And, and can you tell me what you were thinking? Can you, can you tell me what you were desiring at that moment? And is that something that is consistent with walking with Christ? We want to confront people and engage with people's lives so that sin is exposed. And when sin is exposed, friends, now there can be confession and now there can be repentance and now there can be transformation. And and that's been our pattern for 40 years. And I trust by the grace of God for the next 20 and 40 and 60 years, 60 years from now, when I'll say virtually all of us will be gone, that that will still be the testimony of this body. That we say this, this is what we do. We care for one another enough that we want each other to be spirit, fruit-producing uh, followers of Christ. You know what's interesting is when people visit here, I've alluded to this a couple of times recently, when when people visit, it's often that they will say something like, this is a really warm and welcoming church body. I just, I walked in and I just, I felt at home and and people were embracing me and welcoming me. Man, I I felt loved. And it's obvious that that y'all love each other. And, And I see you loving each other and doing things that are loving for each other. And it's interesting that that comment is made in the context of a church body where we deal with each other's sin. Where, where we say, this is sin, let's expose it and let's confess it and let's reconcile to God and one another after it. And friends, that's not, that's not accidental. The love is related to the direct working towards spiritual fruitfulness by dealing with each other's Sin. We are committed to doing that even as we have over the last 40 years. We are also committed to pray and work to know God. Notice another means by which we have lives that are worthy to God, a second, second way to live a life that is worthy of God. He says um, at the end of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. A worthy life of Christ is one that is increasing in the knowledge of God. This, this is what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 1, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you, if you want to, to have wisdom, then you need to know God, to fear Him, to relate to Him. This is, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. I I want to know Him above everything else in life. I want to know God and I want to know Christ. 
There is a direct connection between our knowledge of God and our growth in Christ-likeness and living lives that are worthy of Him. Said Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher, he said, You must needs know that to enjoy God and His Christ is eternal life and the soul's enjoying is in knowing if you if you want to know eternal life then you need to know God and you know what's you know what's really remarkable when when Paul prays i want you to increase in the knowledge of God what is really remarkable remarkable about that is that the unbeliever is absolutely completely unable to know God. Now, he may know a few things about him, but it is an utter impossibility for him to know God. Listen to what, listen to what Jesus says in John 14 to the disciples. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, listen, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know Him. The world cannot have the Spirit because the the world cannot know the Spirit or know God. It is absolutely impossible to know God on our own. But notice what else Jesus says. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. So as an unbeliever, We cannot know God, but as a believer, we can know Him. We can be conformed to Him. We can have intimacy and fellowship with Him. Do we know everything about Him? No, but friends, we can know something about Him and we can know Him and have fellowship with Him. So says James Packer, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This can waste your life and lose your soul. As we think about church life after 40 years of ministry, we are going to help people know God. We are going to be bold with the gospel. We are going to be clear with the gospel. We are are going to be excited about the gospel. We are going to defend the gospel, stand for the gospel. We're going to be defenders of the truth. We're going to, as Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 3, we're going to be the pillar and support of the truth and we're going to propagate the truth. We're going to send the truth. We're going to declare the truth. We're going to be heralds for the truth. Because there is no thing greater than one can do than to know God and be known by Him. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't know God, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that I urge you and compel you, you must know Him. There, there is no ability to know Him on your own. But you must come to Him in faith. We've already alluded to the fact that, that Christ is the perfect God-man. He's, he's fully God, so He can absorb God's wrath and God's judgment. He's fully man, so He can stand in our place. And what is required of all men is that they believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That God poured out His wrath against Christ instead of against us. And that in pouring out His wrath against Christ because of Christ's sinless life, He fully satisfied God's demands. And that by believing in Him... By believing in Christ, God has removed the penalty of sin against us and He has also removed the power of sin from us so that we can live lives that are holy and pleasing to Him. And friend, if you if you are not a believer in Christ, this is what you must do. You, you must believe, you must trust that Christ died to free you from God's penalty and to free you from the sin that was part of your flesh. 
There's a fifth attribute for which we will pray and work. That's given to us in verse 11. We will pray and work for strength to endure. Notice, he says, um, we walk worthy when we are strengthened with all power. The provision of God for us is that He gives us power. He doesn't just call us to do things, but He also equips us when He calls us, and and He gives us power and ability to do the things that He has called us to do. But, But what's compelling about this verse is not just that He gives us some power. Notice what He says. He says, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So He doesn't say strengthened with some power from His glorious might, but He says, in accordance to or in proportion to His glorious might. So how much power does the infinite God of the universe have? I don't know. It's infinite. I can't figure that out. And friends, it is out of that infinite in proportion to that infinite power that He empowers us. This is Paul's way of reminding us that we have at our disposal every measure of strength we need for what He's called us to do. And and Paul points here to something very particular that this power should produce in us. Notice what he says, middle of verse 11, He's praying for this power to be known by the Colossians for, here's the purpose, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. He wants us to be steadfast. There he's talking about all the circumstances and difficulties of life and that when when all the stuff storms against us in life, that we will stand firm on Christ, that we won't abdicate, that we won't go away from Christ. So, when trials and troubles come, we stand. And then, not just in steadfastness, but also in patience. Not just troublesome circumstances, but patience looks towards troublesome people. That when, that when people are in your life that will distract you away from Christ, that you will have the power you need to stand firm, even with the attacks of those people against you. There's been a lot of talk in the last few weeks on the internet, Christian internet, if you will, about apostasy. And it's driven by the departure of several people, several well-known people from faith in Jesus Christ. Several people who have, who have stood and proclaimed and written and led worship now are saying, I, I reject Christ and I, I walk away from Christ. And it's good for us to recognize that it is tempting to give up. It is tempting to quit on Christ. Cultural pressures are weighty. And, and we don't even have the cultural pressures of, of imprisonment or, or physical persecution yet. Those days are probably coming for us, but they're not here yet. But the other pressures that we face are monumental against us. And pressures to make us outcasts and mocked and spat upon and criticized and more. And you think, well, what's the big deal about being mocked and criticized in a culture, an American culture, in which one of the driving principles is that we want to be loved, we crave to be loved. This idea of mocking and criticism is monumental and it is driving people away from Christ. We need to recognize that there will be all kinds of temptations to give up on Christ. It's hard to battle against temptation. It's hard to battle against this attraction I have towards sin. And I I give up. That's Demas. It's hard to be the only person remaining. It's hard to be the only one that's standing for the cause of Christ. I give up. That's Elijah. It's hard to be the outcast and discriminated against. I give up. I, I, I would stand if I could, but I'm the only one. And, and people are mocking me and criticizing me and making fun of me. And I just want to fit in. That's the letter to the Hebrews. It's hard to suffer physically the way I have. God doesn't care about me, so I don't care about Him anymore either. If He can't care enough to heal me and give me an easy life, then I don't care about Him 
That's Job's friends and that's Job's wife. And friend, what I want you to see in this verse is that the power of God has been given to us to endure in all these situations. As we think about about church life after 40 years of ministry, we are committed to being with one another in hardship. We are, we are committed to walking alongside each other so that we remind each other of the power of Christ that is available to help us through our circumstances. We are committed to helping one another with the hardships of life, the illnesses that, that debilitate and incapacitate and, and sinful temptations that draw us away from Christ. We are with people for the long and hard things in life, not just the easy and simple things. And we are committed to helping one another with the hardships of relationships. We are committed to helping each other and walking alongside each other when circumstances and people tempt us to be impatient and quit on each other. We're committed to restoring relationships through confession and forgiveness. We will not quit. Remember a number of years ago, many years ago now, I was counseling another couple from another church and they'd heard about our ministry and they came to our ministry and, it, and, and they were a mess. And um, in the process of trying to help them, they needed more than what I could give them on a weekly basis. So we got another couple from their church that was mature and that couple sat in on the counseling and that couple... Was the go-to were the go-to people in that relationship during the week. So when they cratered during the week in between our sessions, that they'd call that couple and that couple would would pray with them, counsel them, encourage them um, in the middle of the week. I met with that couple more than thirty times, and I don't remember where it was. It was somewhere in the middle. That one of we had a session. The couple left, and the advisory couple remained and stayed. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I was still sitting at my desk, and, and he got up, and he, he leaned on the front of my desk, put his hands on the front of my desk, and kind of leaned in towards me. And he said, why do you keep doing this? Why do you, why do you keep spending time with them? We have met with them 15 times, 18 times. They are not changing why? Why do you persist? And I said, because it's really simple. It's because they are coming. And because I have an opportunity to unfold to them the riches of the power of Christ to change them. And if I quit, who will tell them of the power of Christ to change them? I will not quit on them. He said, well, you may not quit, but I do. And he walked out. Friends, we we will not quit. This is is the power of Christ that can change people's lives. And, And we want our brothers and sisters in Christ to see that. That there is strength to endure. There is strength to persist. There is strength to continue to walk with Christ and be worthy of Christ. Sixthly, we will pray and work for hearts of gratitude. And we talked about this at length last week, so we won't belabor the point. But just, just notice verse 12. He says, joyously giving thanks to the Father. Notice he doesn't just identify God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but here He is the Father. Implication, He is our Father. He, he is loving towards us and in fellowship with us as His sons And we give thanks to Him who is our Father, who loves us, who, verse 12, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why Why do we give thanks? Because He has made us to receive from the inheritance that is in Christ. He's given us what we need in Christ. We need to to be thankful. We need to cultivate gratitude and And we are, by and large, a grateful congregation. But after 40 years of ministry, we are going to work and pray that we will continue in gratitude towards God. Well, there's one more thing to do, as I said last week. If Paul says, 
this is what I pray. And if we say we will pray, then we must pray. And I'm going to ask if you would bow with me and let us commend ourselves to this work of prayer and this work of ministry. Would you pray, please? Our Father, we bow before you in humility and dependence. We need you to save us. We need you to transform us and guide us if we will be of any service to you. We affirm our agreement with Paul and you about the priorities of what we should pray and do from this passage. And as we think about the ministry of the church in the years ahead and our own lives, we ask for these things. Will you fill us with your Spirit? Will you use your Spirit in our lives to give us a knowledge of your will? We want to know what is required of us and available to us. So will you use the Spirit to guide us as we read and study your Word so that we can know it and obey it? And will you use the Spirit to give us insight for all wisdom and the particular application of that wisdom to our own lives? Will you fill us with your Spirit? And as we ask for your Spirit, we also affirm our commitment to submit to the authority of the Spirit and the Word and to let them control us. We also ask that you will compel us to live lives that are worthy of you and of our Savior Jesus. We want to be transformed so that our lives conform to our Savior's life. We desire to live in concert with Christ. We want to look like Christ. So would you sanctify us increasingly so that our lives are Christ-honorable lives? And as we ask for worthy lives, we also affirm our commitment by the Spirit to live worthy of you. Will you also produce spiritual fruit in us? Will you give us fruit as evangelists and disciplers and worshipers and as discipliners? Would you help us to deal with sin in our own lives and then grace to love and help those who are weak with sin in their lives so that they can be freed from Satan's deception? And as we ask for spiritual fruit for all of us, we also affirm our commitment by the Spirit to pursue godly fruit and forsake worldly idols and pleasures. Will you give us a deepening knowledge of you? We want to know about you and we want to know you. We want to be consumed with you, feasting on you, satisfied with you, guardians of the truth and protected from falsehood and error. Would you give us wisdom to protect your truth and to know you through your truth? And as we ask to know you, we also affirm our commitment by the Spirit to pursue you and a knowledge of intimacy with you. Will you also give us a strength to endure? The world is enticing us to leave you for many reasons. Would you embolden us and strengthen us and keep us? Would you keep us from failing and making a mockery of our lives and and leading others to also mock Christ? As we ask for strength, we also affirm our commitment by the Spirit to live worthy of you by appropriating the strength that you have given us. And then, Father, would you give us hearts of gratitude? We are tempted to be discontent with what we don't have on earth. Make us content with the riches of what we have in heaven Help us to see the grace and goodness of Christ and help us to be thankful for all things in all circumstances. And as as we ask for gratitude, we also affirm our commitment by the Spirit to cultivate thankfulness and flee from ingratitude and self-absorption. Father, this is what the Apostle Paul has prayed for the Colossians and in some sense has prayed for us. This is a prayer that should guide our own praying for ourselves and for our church body day by day. And this is a prayer that should also guide us for what we do, both personally and corporately. Would you see fit, Father, to make us faithful, to pray and to do just what we have heard this morning. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen.